0: Hello and welcome to the Not A Victim podcast. Not A Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guest is Jeremy Marsh. All right, man. So um, just go ahead and tell me a little bit about your background and uh, upbringing and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, man. So uh, let's just start off where I was a kid, man. I uh, you know, grew up loving uh, instruments, always had instruments in my house. And uh, my dad was a musician, so I always listened to him play. And i always wanted to do that myself and my first main instrument was a drum set so immediately you know i just as a kid i fell in love with music Uh, we had an organ at our house i remember i never really knew knew why the organ was there i just remember it's a weird instrument to have at your house yeah but it wasn't like this massive organ or anything it's just you know it was just crazy looking and uh, i just remember (laughs) always messing with it i loved it you know I never wanted it to go anywhere. Uh, I always wanted it there. I I, I fell in love with that thing. And and, and as I played drums, I'd play, you know, the organ. And then finally I started on guitar. And just all these different instruments came into my life, became a part of my life. It became a part of who I was. And um, as time went on, um, I really began to, you know, make music a a key thing uh, as to who I was as a person. Right. Um, but, uh, Throughout
0: like high school or middle school or y- when did you start playing in bands and stuff? Yeah, so in uh,
1: middle school, I um I remember I I started the in the jazz band in middle school, right? And uh, I, I loved I loved playing drums. So so any opportunity that I had. To, to actually play the drum set, it was kind of like I wanted to show off or I wanted to yeah. to really show my skills and, and there 's something about that connection with other musicians uh, there was there was always uh, that desire there was always that want and that need to to show people uh, my ability to play I, I felt like I always as a kid I always had that and I think I looked for that because I looked for that in my dad I looked for that in in
0: him, and I always felt like I never got that you know, in a sense, uh, like he didn't, he was a musician too, but he didn't really right. validate that part of you. Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: So I always looked for that approval, uh, in my talent, right? through, from other people.
0: Well, tell me more about your home life and what that was like. Yeah. So at a young age, I
1: remember, uh, you know, mom always had the, she always had us in church. Um, but dad, you know, he'd be at church with us, but at the same time, um, you could just tell that it wasn't really the, 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 the church father, you know, the, yeah. the godly father. You know, he, at home he was a, most of the time an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you could just tell uh, that, that he wasn't really, that wasn't really his life. That wasn't really who he was. and, right. and uh, he, he wasn't leading his family, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, as, in a godly way. Right. Um, I just remember growing up, you know, getting in trouble all the time even as a even as a young child you know i remember one time i was out in the neighborhood on a saturday morning like i always did you know i went on my bike and i went out into the neighborhood and played with friends my, i was probably 12 years old you know 11 years old and right. uh, i remember coming home around lunch and my dad was waiting for me in the garage and i could just tell he was angry i could see it mm-hmm. all over his face and he had a beer in his hand and a cigarette in the other hand and he walks up to me and he says i've been whistling for you all morning where have you been hmm. and in my mind i'm like you know what did i do wrong you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I do this all the time yeah dad what's the problem you know and, and the truth was is my dad was just he was drunk and uh, i guess he wanted me to cut the grass that morning i don't really remember exactly what the problem was but at that moment he grabbed me by the shirt and he grabbed my bike at the same time dropped his beer and his cigarette and grabbed me by the shirt and and the bike and pulled me into the garage and laid my bike down and grabbed a grinder and he literally grinded my bike in half. And, and, And I don't have all these... Negative memories of him I just have a few But I just You know Right Most of the time I was afraid of him
0: I was gonna say Did you have a general feeling That you had to like Walk on eggshells Like just not All make him mad, you the
1: know? time I was
0: always on eggshells
1: Around him I was always worried That I was doing something wrong Or bothering him mm. I always felt that
0: mm. Yeah mm. So let's talk about um, High school And just starting from there Yeah,
1: yeah. man as, uh, as I When I reached 15 You know Kind of starting into high school My uh, my parents divorced Um, I had just gotten into like a rebellious attitude uh, with my parents, you know, not really making good grades, uh, just rebellion in general. You know, my my, my dad and my mom were always fighting about something, you know, when I got home. Mom trying to lead the kids to God. Dad, you know, not really worried about it. Drunk, alcoholic, paying the bills, making things happen. But it wasn't really, you know, your your standard Christian family. You know what I'm saying? Do you think that you're –
0: yeah. Obviously, some acting out is just because you're young, but some of it, do you think, was a reaction to the chaos of your maybe,
1: home? maybe. Um, I also had a, an influence from friends, you know, who right. who really had broken homes as well. Yeah, uh, and and my parents divorced at 15. My my dad became uh, he became cooler in a sense, you know, where if I went to his house, I was allowed to drink, you know, um, and for a kid who's 15 years old and and into girls and into you know, uh, I, I guess in a sense, I didn't know God then, you know, I didn't know yeah. Jesus as my savior. So, so my, in my mind, you know, that was a cool thing. The fact yeah. that that dad would hand me a beer, you know, that,
0: that kind made of you sh- feel grown up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even though there was no healing whatsoever from my past with him, hmm. uh, you know, all I had was these eggshell moments all the time where I was worried if I was doing something wrong or, well, you know, and, and, and spankings were a big thing in my childhood. You know, if I messed up, Big time, you know, big time spanking. You knew what was coming at the, at the house, you know. But th- mm-hmm. there was other times where, you know, I had that father connection where he was, you know, my father. And I, there was loving the, loving there, you know, love there. But uh, yeah. most of the time, you know, I always felt like I was just a bother to him.
0: Do you think that the going back to the spankings, or whatever, do you think that he was passive aggressive, that he would like sort of let something build up? And then have, like, a rage moment or something rather than, like, be really diplomatic about whatever it was?
1: Uh, No, no. It, it wasn't passive-aggressive whatsoever. Okay. It was, you know, if this happens, this is what's going to happen pretty right. much all the time. It was pretty consistent. Uh, right. But there were times where stuff would build up and he would snap. But it wasn't like he would beat me with his hands. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He just did things that were really shocking sometimes. Mm. And it was f- just a few moments in my life, like the bike moment, where he, where he, where he grinded my bike in half. Yeah. Uh, and he felt so bad about that later on that he bought me a new bike. But, you know, you could tell that there was potential there for a wonderful family. But God was just missing in that family. Yeah. Um, it, it was half. You know, it was 50% in there. You know, my mom wanted that so bad for us. But, mm. but dad just, he didn't really grasp onto that until later on in, in his life. <clears throat> um, but moving into high school, I, I began to, to start bands. And, man, that's where I really found my connection you know, was with, was in Friends and music.
0: Right, and, that was and, sort of your social currency.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And this whole time, you know, my mom, she's just trying to do the best that she can to raise her son, you know. Yeah. She's really trying to, to, to pour God into my life, but I just didn't want to hear it, you know. Uh, where was God when, uh, you know, my dad beat the crap out of me? Or where was yeah. God when my dad sold my bike? And, you know, just all the, you know, me blaming yeah. everything on God. And I like,
0: think the bike incident is big because when you're a little kid and you see your dad, like, Become unhinged. It, it's sort of like a fundamental uh, question mark now. That like he's supposed to be the guy that you can always count on supposed <laughs> to be sane. Yeah. And then when he's not sane, you're like, okay, hold on. Maybe adults are not what I thought they were. That's right. And yeah, and I guess it's just the like not knowing what's about to happen. Like yes, because you didn't see that coming. You don't like you didn't you didn't necessarily know if it was going to escalate from there. Right. Right. You know, Think I didn't. But, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so let's keep talking about the music Yeah, stuff. man,
1: so uh, I really fell in love with music. I fell in love with that connection with other people who could play at the same capacity as myself. And uh, I had a you know specific group of guys that I played with, and outside of music, my life, you know, as a teenager, was basically smoking weed, drinking alcohol, and partying. Uh, That's really what it was. And uh, when I wasn't doing all that and focused on how are we going to party, it was about, you know, it was about music. It was about writing music with my buddies, uh, you know. And and we almost found a completion of of who we were as people, Uh, you know. That was it. You know, school, all that stuff, none of that mattered. It was just about, hey, when we get out of school today, we're going to go to the house, you know, we're gonna we're gonna write. We're gonna uh, do it for hours, and and we always had a place to practice. Man, it was just it was really neat uh, because w- it was never a, a time when we we couldn't. And uh, this band I was in, man, we were just we were so close. We did everything together, um, yeah. but at the same time, we did everything negative together also. Sure. Um, as time went on, uh, in the in the band thing, we never really re- went anywhere. We never really made it or anything like that. Um, we were we were an instrumental band, so we just kind of, you know, really. I wasn't really a singer at that time, yeah. but uh, w- we just enjoyed writing music, playing, and and sharing what we were playing with everybody. And we shared that through partying and sharing that music. So we'd have a party and play with our band, and people would come and watch and
0: listen. And we found joy in that. We found. Sure. Uh, completion. It's like big fish, small pond. Uh, yeah, scenario where like. <clears throat> You may be nobody anywhere else, but, like, sure. at your school, like, you're the guy. <laughs> exactly. You know, there was a,
1: just a, a darker part in me through all of that, you know. I found identity in that. Yeah. I found identity in sharing that, that musicianship with those guys. And when I was home and away from them, you know, if I wasn't high, I was miserable. Um, if I wasn't high on weed, why, why or, do you think that was i I don't know i I think uh I think that I had become so accustomed to using weed and alcohol and finally pain pills. I become so accustomed to that uh and at home, you know it was always drama um hmm. you know, I stay at my mom's and then you know I didn't want to go to church then I didn't was want... was it between her and your dad or her yeah and her yeah and yeah, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, so with, with her. her So with my mom, it was this pressure and you got to get your life together. You need to bring your grades up. You need to, um, you know, what are you doing when you're not here? What's going on? Why are you getting into trouble? You know, all this, all this, I I wanted to be my own person. But at the same time, at my dad's, I didn't have a connection with him, but I could do whatever I wanted. Right. You know, so it was just really dark and there was no sense of me finding anything more out of life than what I was doing. Um mm. uh, the only sense of hope and joy and happiness that I had was the music with those guys and the connection and friendship that I had, well, yeah. the friendship that I thought I had with these people that I was living this life with. And I was just so young at the time, man. Yeah. I had no idea what life was. Um, right. My grades were terrible. I was failing, flunking and every it, class. And you're
0: probably too young to see the... Um, Kindness and what your mom was trying to do at that yes, time. You know what I mean? Yes. It was just—it just seemed pure, like authoritarian, right? Because you're really young and you're—you just, just trying to tell me what to <laughs> <you> do, <laughs> yeah. right? Right? And I guess it's not till way later where oh man, you're so right. You're just like, well, she was giving me a more sustainable way to live, but yeah, um, yeah. Let's just go from there from high school sure. or whatever. Have so debt. I'm uh, barely
1: making it through high school, and uh, sure enough, I I get to the point where. I'm so addicted to pain pills that I'm 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 stealing from my family to to get people to pawn stuff for me, so that I can afford pain pills. How me. were you introduced to them? <clears throat> my dad. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, my dad. Uh, l- uh, well, I was probably 13 when he got in a really. Well, he got in several car accidents growing up, but hmm. there was one that really messed him up pretty bad. His back and his neck, and he he pretty much was on pain pills from that point forward till, the, till he died. And oh, wow. uh, they were really powerful painkillers. And I just remember one day being over there. I was probably 16 years old, and I, I was at his house. And um, I remember just going into his room, and he, you know, I always heard about you know, I'm not going to give any names of the type of pain pills or anything like that because it doesn't matter. But I just remember hearing all these names of pain pills that would get you high. Hmm. And I just remember grabbing one and taking it. And I never, you know, at that moment, the way that I felt was so, to me, it was just so incredible. And so uh, it, it almost was fulfilling because it changed the way that I felt about myself. It changed the way that, it changed my motivations. It almost made it to where I could do anything. You know, in my mind, in my mind, it felt like I was on top of the world when I felt this high. And that's what it did to me. It made me feel Like Superman made me feel complete. Um, and I didn't want to feel any other way, and I felt like I had an endless supply, so I started taking them from my dad. And if sure enough, he noticed and he'd hide his pills. And so, when I couldn't get them from him, I'd get them from the drug dealer. And when I ran out of money, I had to steal, so I'd steal to get money. And then, when I couldn't steal anymore from my family because they had literally, you know, had enough, my mom came to where I was at. I don't know how she knew where I was, but she came to where I was at and, and, and one of my buddies came up to me and said, Hey man, your mom's out in the, in the driveway. And I remember running out there saying, what's up? You know, I thought something, something happened to, to somebody in our family, but she said, I need you to get in the car and I need you to come with me. So I got in the car and she said, we're going to the hospital right now. And I was like, what's going on? She said, I want you to take a drug test. And I said, I'm not taking a drug test. She said, you're either going to take a drug test or I'm going to call the cops. I just remember kind of dwelling on that for a second there because I had just stolen a bunch of jewelry from her and, um, you know, sold it to the pawn shop or to the drug dealer, whatever it was. I don't even remember. I just remember stealing a bunch of stuff from her. And uh, she said, you're either going to take a drug test so I can see what's going on or I'm going to call the cops. And so I took the drug test. And I remember right when we left the hospital. The first stop sign we came to, I opened the door, slammed it, and ran away from the car. And I just could imagine what that did to her in that moment. You know, I could I could only imagine the way that made her feel. But for some reason, she needed to see on paper what was inside of me, what I, what I had been doing with my life, what I had been doing to myself. And the very next day, my mom comes to me. And and tells me she's going to call the cops unless I take a drug test. So I take the drug test, and sure enough, she sees her 16-year-old child. Uh, Urine is dirty with every substance, basically, that, that you could get high off of. And she takes it to the church, man, one Sunday morning. I hadn't been home since. She takes it to the church, and I just remember... Her telling me about this later on in life, but she she walks up to the front, man. and She's got the paper in, in her hand, and she's just falling apart. And and and, and the pastor comes down, and he asks the whole church to circle her and circle the paper. And I, man, I'm getting I'm I'm getting messed up thinking about it because it's how good God is, man. That's how awesome He is. And I just remember this whole church, man, praying over me, and I didn't even know it. I had people praying for me. And I didn't even know it. I had no idea what God was putting in the works for me. I had no idea what he was doing for me behind the scenes in the midst of my sin. And uh, man, these people were just crying their hearts out that God would do whatever it took to bring me to him. Whatever it took. As time went on, my addiction became just a, a, a monster. I, when I couldn't steal from my family anymore, I'd steal from people. And I really want to talk about this one subject because it really matters. There was this guy, uh, his son was a friend of mine, and I remember I had crashed at their house one night. We were high the night before. And I woke up early that morning, and I went into his dad's room, and I, there was this like little piggy bank thing, and it, had, it was full of cash. And I just remember taking all the cash out of it and leaving. And that night, one of my buddies called me and said, man, they knew you took that money. They said, if you don't take it back over there, they're going to call the cops. And I went over to the guy's house out of fear that I was going to go to jail for taking this money. And so I get there, and I knock on the door, and I had already used a lot of the money. Man, there was like three, $400 in there. I already used a lot of the money. And I knocked on the door, and I said, "Hey, hey, I'm really, really sorry I did this. And I wasn't sorry. I was just sorry that I got caught, you know, at the time. But I had to cover my tracks. I didn't want to go to jail. And, uh, so I said, man, I'm really sorry. I did this. Here's your money back. I I said, I I spent some of it. And the guy said, Hey, I just want you to know that if you need a job, I'll give you a job. If you need a way to make money, I can help you. He said, but before you go, I want to pray with you. And he prayed with me, man. And I was so shocked. I was so blown away at the, uh, Just the love and the kindness that this person had towards me after stealing from him. I mean, could you imagine? You know, the kind of uh, you know godliness that it takes to 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 make that decision to say, "Hey, I want to pray for you and I want to give you a job," after stealing from you. I mean, it just it's just incredible to see uh, how God worked in my life, even when I when I when I didn't believe in Him. And uh, so I remember taking the job. And man, this guy gave me a truck to use to get to work. He uh, he paid me a paycheck that I didn't deserve. And uh, man, a month later, I, I just wasn't even showing up to work anymore. This is how sick I was, man. I wasn't even showing up to work anymore. Uh, I was just using the truck, taking advantage of him. And you know, finally, he asked for the truck back, and um, he said, "Man, I really, I really, uh, I want you to work for me, but you gotta, you gotta make the right choices." And I just couldn't make the right choices, man. I couldn't do the right thing. Obviously the reason is is I'm I was a complete addict I mean I was totally addicted to pain pills stealing from people I, I was in a vicious cycle and sure enough man this cycle it just kept progressing and progressing and I could not afford to take care of my own addiction and as time went on I began to break into cars and when that wasn't enough it went to houses and sure enough man my my road came to an end when Cops pulled up into a house that I had just broken into, 17-year-old kid inside of someone's home in the neighborhood that I lived in, looking for pain pills, looking for a high. All this time, when I look back and to see God how how much mercy he had on me, I could have been shot, I could have been killed, man. And uh, I just remember when these sheriffs pulled up in this driveway, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. But I saw them out the window. It was a gravel driveway, and all I heard was, you know, the car tires sliding across the gravel. <sighs> you know what I mean? And so I ran out the door because uh, they ran around the back. I ran out the front, and uh, I just started throwing everything out of my pockets. And this cop, man, he was about 10 feet away from me when I saw him. He had his gun pointed at my head. And I just stuck my hands up in the air. and I surrendered. It was time for me to stop running. And this was where God's plan started coming into play, man.
0: I want to ask you about, um, I believe that the other side of, okay, so hedonism, the idea that if it feels good, do it, they sort of live for today. Uh, You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die. Um, That that whole way of seeing the world, that the other side of that coin, that the underlying assumption of that uh, worldview is nihilism, is the belief that nothing means anything. And so, did you ever have that sense during that time that even though you were having uh, you were having these highs, that ultimately there was some kind of underlying dread um, at play there? Yes. I
1: knew that if I could not get the pain pills, that I was going to go through the worst, worst withdrawal. Just this feeling of emptiness, this feeling of sickness, and uh, uh, this feeling of... Unaccomplishment. I felt accomplished when I was high. I felt like that's who I was. Like I, I wasn't myself unless I was high. And i had gotten so sick on them that I had to have them physically to even, to even do anything, to even get out of the bed. You know, and a lot of people who have been an addict can tell you, you know, heroin addicts and and all these people who have experienced this. There's a physical addiction to pain pills, um, especially when you go this deep in them.
0: Yeah, and I, yeah. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he was talking about how he sort of had this. Love affair with the version of him when he was high. Yes. That he so identified with that version of him because it, he was, that version of him wasn't um, afraid and wasn't like right. uh, scared of the future, wasn't scared to talk to girls, was like just braver and less yes. um, neurotic or whatever. And that you sort of build association with that. You have this like affection for a certain version of you. Absolutely. That you never want to be. Uh, the this sort of uh and that's how it <laughs> you never want to be like you actually are. right
1: yeah that's how it starts and then it, it, it grabs you like that and then over time it gets to the point where you can't have be without it right because you're just going to be sick throwing up diarrhea you know uh, uh absolutely sick
0: yeah so let's talk about your experience um after being arrested okay man so um i'm arrested and i'm taken
1: to the jail and i remember first phone call I made, I called my mom and I let her know, And you know, in her mind I could just, you know, I could just tell she knew it was time because she knew that I was doing something illegal. She knew that, you know, and and I think her prayer was answered in a sense that day because she literally, man, from that day forward she had just been praying that, that God would do whatever it took to bring me to Him. And uh, thank God for a mom that prayed for her son. Thank God for that because Uh, The first thing I walked into when I went to my cell was a guy, man, look, and he had the stereotypical look too, man, bald head, (laughs) huge, built, you know, like a brick wall tattoos from head to toe. And this guy's staring at this 17 year old skinny kid, man, Mm -hmm. just walking in here looking sick as a dog. And the first question, the first question he asked me is, do you need a Bible? I didn't answer him. I, uh, I just kind of shook my head. Um, you know, I thought right then in that moment, the last thing I wanted to do was think about God, something that didn't exist in my mind, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I just remember getting up in the bed, man, curling up sick as a dog, just at the thought of me being, you know, arrested. But before I go into what happens after that, I remember talking with uh, the detective and I had this sense of just surrender, you know, for some reason there was this thing deep inside of me saying, tell them everything. And I didn't know how the detective stuff worked. I had no idea, you know, that you're not supposed to talk. You wait till your lawyer gets there. Right. (laughs) I didn't know any of that. So I'm in there, man. And this guy, he's saying, I need your help, Jeremy. You know, if we're going to help you out and get you through this, I need you to be honest with me. And he's sitting here looking at this list, asking me about these these different cases that he had. And I said, I said this to him. I said, hey, man, is that, is that a list of, of, of crimes? He said, yeah, this is all potential crimes that you've committed. And I just remember saying, can I see the list real quick? And can I see your pen? And I grabbed the list, and I grabbed his pen. And as I began to look at the addresses and, and uh, the different crimes that were committed, like breaking into cars and the houses that were in my neighborhood, I remember saying, hey, man, look, I did this one, and I did this one, and I did this one. And I was checking them things off, man. And I had 19 hmm. com- uh, confessions to 19 different felonies. And I was immediately charged with every one of them because of a confession that I gave right there in that room. And, and he said this to me. He said, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you write a letter to the DA. And I didn't know what I was going to write. I just remember writing a letter saying, this is what I'm doing with my life. I'm sick and I need help, whatever that meant, you know, whatever that was supposed to mean, however that was supposed to help me. I don't think that did anything for me because, uh, there was a guy who was locked up with me at the same time and he had two burglaries. I had 19. Yeah. All right. He had two and he got 10 years in prison. Mm. So I'm, I'm sitting in there and, uh, I just remember day by day goes by I can't eat I can't sleep I'm throwing up I'm diarrhea I got all this withdrawal It's three days into my stay And it's just now Getting to the worst Of the withdrawal You know It usually takes Mm -hmm. a week and a half To to really cycle through your body And I got my mom Sending me letters every day People from her church With Bible verses on it And I get called out To see my appointed attorney And the first thing he says to me is "Um, Listen man Just hang in there I'm going to try to work out a deal But uh, right now It's not looking too good And I was like Well well, why? And you know what? I've never been in trouble before. He said, you literally confessed to every crime you've ever committed, Jeremy. There's nothing I can do. You confessed to it. They have, they have audible confession. And, uh, he I said, well, what are they think talking about right now? And he said, uh, it was like a 40 to 20 in prison, 40 years probation, 20 years in prison. Mm. And, uh, you know, burglary is a, is a 90% charge, which means that you'll do 90% of the time in there. So 20 years, you'll do 18. Mm. So I go back to my cell, uh, just the thought of me spending, you know, the rest of my youth and the rest of my young adult life in prison, uh, just sickened me even more. And I just remember this fear, this gripping fear over my body and over my mind. And my heart, and just who I was as a person. I just felt so empty, man, and so uh, so hopeless, so hopeless. And no lie, when I get back to my cell, there's a Bible sitting on my bed. And I didn't look at it right then, but uh, it was just God's way of incredibly calling me, you know, just saying, here I am let me show you how real I am. But I couldn't see that at that time because I, I just didn't believe in God in that moment. And uh, I remember just getting up on my bunk and I got a letter in the mail that day and on the letter it had a Bible verse. And the Bible verse was Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 14. And it says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And when you call on me and pray to me and seek me, you will find me when you search with all of your heart and I'll be found by you and I'll bring you back from your captivity. I'll bring you back to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. And those words grabbed me and I I began to think in my mind, well, if God's saying this to me, if he's saying that he'll bring me out of my captivity, I went in prayer based off of fear, but God had other plans for me. Um, when I went down on the floor at that moment, after reading that verse, I remember getting on my knees and it it was, we were in the middle of a break. So all the inmates were out socializing with each other and I was in my room and I remember getting down on my knees and just sticking my hands up in the air and surrendering to a God I didn't know. And I said, God, I want to stand on your word that you're saying is true. And if you're the God of the universe, the God of creation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, I'm um, that that your word is true, and I'm gonna stand on it. and I'm gonna believe that Jesus is my savior. And I remember when I asked Jesus to come into my heart, man. I can't explain it. Uh, I can't really give you, you know, an exact emotion or a feeling or what it was. But God has a way of doing something to you that you can't explain to another human being because it's a God thing. So anyway, I'm sitting there, man, and God engulfs this. Eight by ten sale. Um, literally, man, just the power of God comes into that room, and in a way, I've never experienced it. Even today, um, you know, it, it, it's just like His way of saying, "Hey, I'm here, and I'm real, and I'm going to do something with you that you've never seen before. I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to show you how powerful." And how real this God really is, man. And look, he, I just remember it felt like God was in there wrapping his arms around me. And I I balled up into a ball on the floor. And, I, and it was as if I was laying in his lap uh, in complete surrender. Because, man, I, I didn't just feel his presence. It was an enlightenment, a sense of peace and love and joy and hope in the midst of my fear in the midst of my failure in the midst of my sin. And listen, dude, I was in complete withdrawal. Okay. From pain pills. I was sick as a dog and that went away immediately. There wasn't a pastor in the room. I wasn't in the middle of a church service. It was me and an old Bible and a verse and God touched me through it. And that's how real he is. That's how relevant he is. He'll meet us in our, in our sickness. He'll meet us in our darkest moments. And look, God loved me so much, man. He loved me so much. Even when I didn't love him, even when I didn't know him, even when I didn't share his name or, or or think of his existence, he loved me so much that he would come to this filthy rag in that cell, and he would just completely rock my world. But you know what? What's what's so sad about that moment is is that wasn't enough for me in the future. Now, now for a period it was, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but after that moment, man, I just remember all I wanted to do was read his word. I wanted to tell my mom that I just met God. Mm. So I called her, man. I called her, and I said, "Mom, you won't believe this, but I just hung out with Jesus in my cell." And she, you know, she was just so excited that uh, in 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 the midst of all my my trials and tribulation in life, uh, you know, her son was was starting to to believe that Jesus was real. So they had like this uh this prayer call, you know, in this in the dorm that I was in, and I just remember going to it, man, and 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 constantly telling people about my experience with God my myself and, uh, and encouraging people. And, and as I read the Bible, the more and more God, you know, filled me up, spoke into me and, uh, his word really became real. Uh, it, it really became a guide and became, um, hope and it completely, man, my withdrawal was completely gone. The fear that gripped me and kept me from eating and sleeping. Uh, it went away, the diarrhea, the the throwing up, all that, man, it stopped and it was truly a miracle. It was, it was truly, uh, a way of, for God to show me how it really was. And no one can take that away from me. You know, it was just one of those moments where you just know, man, that's God. And, uh, as it was about two months later, man, um, just praying and having my family pray for me and the people at my mom's church two months into it, uh, I get called back out to talk to my attorney again. I remember walking down the hallway, man, just praying to God, saying, I trust you. I'm not going to fear this. Because even though I'm locked up on the on the outside, God, you freed me on the inside. No matter what happens with my life, I'm yours no matter what happens. And I, and I start speaking that scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 again. And when I get in there, man. Uh, he gives me this incredible news, uh, and he says he doesn't really know how. He says because you basically confessed to everything you ever did. He said, but there's a deal that's been worked out, and it's ten to two. And uh, I, and I wasn't even gonna go to prison. It was a it was a PDC where basically it's like a boot camp, and um, I was gonna go to two different ones. One of them had a recovery uh, twelve step program built in it. Uh, after I left the first one, so I ended up doing
0: 21 months total right. before I got out. And do you think, like, part of the reason that um, they gave you that deal is because of how transparent you were with them? That they just felt you were being really honest with them? Honestly, honestly, man, um,
1: the judge couldn't believe that the DA had put that deal out there because there there had been plenty of times when you know when people were honest about their crime, you know, basically part of the tactics and strategy for a detective is to try and get confessions so that they can keep their conviction rate up. Right. Um, so the fact that there's a minimum sentence on a burglary charge. okay? Right. There's a minimum sentence. Literally, my charges were dropped all the way down to five charges. Hmm. Why they were dropped, no one knows. There, there's, there's no reason for them to be dropped. I confessed to them. They shouldn't have been dropped. It's a miracle as to how I got the sentence that I got based upon there's a guy that had two charges, never been in trouble before, and got 10 years in prison. Right. I truly believe this with all of my heart, not based of my transparency. I believe that, that God really worked out a miracle because my appointed attorney said this. He says, I have no idea how you're getting this deal. He says he didn't do it. That's that's exactly what he said to me. He said, man, I didn't work this deal out. It was worked out for you. And, man, I just truly believe that uh, that, that was a miracle for me.
0: Yeah, um, I kind of think, um, yeah, I'm sort of torn about um, this kind of story, but two things. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I was reading something the other day, and it was saying that your view of – of God's like physical miracles might is might be largely due to um, your like willingness to um, right. look for them basically or to accept them and I think there's certainly some uh, sure. truth in, truth in that and part me of too. me part of me I don't I don't know there's like a, there's another part of me that that doesn't quite think that it works that way um, that yeah. part of me thinks that like that God basically created the world with its rule set and that it plays by the rules that he made it to play by and that he doesn't really interrupt its day-to-day actions. Sure. Um, And I think that is sort of based on the free will principle that— or to go back to, like, one of the biggest questions people have about faith, which is, um, if there's God, why did this terrible thing happen? Yeah. And my response to them generally would be— because of free will, there can't be love without choice. And once you have choice, then all kind of evil comes with that. And um and that so the world turns with those was that rule set that all kind of evil and good happens because people are totally free to do whatever. Yeah. And then so this is kind of a, a contradiction. But here's the second part. This is very important. I was talking to someone on Facebook about this just a few minutes ago. Um so the intellectual part of me says that that if God does give us free will And um, just then, that the other side of that is that he does not interrupt the the world, because if he did, then he would be on the hook for all the times that he didn't. Basically, yeah. Um, Like, and I think that so there's that's part of me. Then okay, then the other part, and this is a core part of believing in God or even believing in a higher power or whatever, is the at the very base of that is the humility to say there are things that can be known that I do not know. There are experiences to be had that I have not had. Absolutely. And um, that there is something above me, and just because I have not experienced something, which I kind of have, (laughs) uh, but that's a different story, but um, just because I have not experienced something does not mean that no one ever has. Right. Um, Or that—anyway, so those two—that's sort of a dichotomy. Those things are contradicting each other, and I get that. But those are the two things sort of uh, warring in my head at all times, but— um, yeah, and I, and I was thinking about this again going back to something that I was talking about online today is that I believe that most atheists are convenience atheists, that they, they want the world to work by their terms. And so um, at the end of the day, atheism is largely based on arrogance that I want to determine right and wrong for myself because it is very convenient for my lifestyle and for what I want, how I want the world to be in that um, at the belief, at the fundamental core of believing in God, or even believing in a higher power, is that maybe there is an objective truth that is outside of me, that is before me and after me, and that um, with that comes all kind of responsibility. So that's the downside. But the upside is, it ties you to the people who are here before you, the people that are alive now, and the people that will be here after. That... um, if you do believe that you are your own God, then it is impossible to have meaning because at the end of the day, you'll know that you made up the meaning, whatever it is, mm. and that there's nothing above you. There's nothing but you. And so um, this is something that happened years ago when I was going through depression, that the when it broke um, after a couple months of hiding it, um, the like paradigm shift that happened for me was this one, that... Um, I started to get more and more honest as things got more and more painful, and I think um, that's true for most people. Absolutely. And I think this is why so many people find faith in God in jail and places like that, yeah. is because the pain of something, it reorders your priorities um, very easily um, because yes. it's just so painful. And so anyway, so after a couple months of going through depression and getting closer to closer to being suicidal— um, I, that was happening. My my priorities were shifting and I started to only care about what was true even if it felt counterproductive, to, I mean um, counterintuitive to me or was like kind of cut against the grain of what I wanted. That like I was so doubting that anything was real that that was the thing that I wanted more than anything um, was something to be objectively true. And uh, anyway, so during that time, and this is a story I've, I've told many times, but after a few months I, I kind of felt like God revealed to me that if I died now, like, there are a few people like my family that it would bother forever, but a lot of people um, would just, like, talk about it on Facebook for, like, a week or something, and then their life would go on, that we were, uh, we were basically sort of window shopping in each other's life, and that seems negative, and it seems uh, morbid or something, but it was a really positive moment for where I was at that time, because it showed me how much importance i had been putting on those people that like their problems don't keep me up my problems don't keep them up and so it put the it sort of was god's way of saying what i'm doing here has nothing like it will go on if you die it'll go on if you live so if you do live you can be a part of what is happening either way yeah. and so it it allowed me to be a small part of a big world Rather than to be a hundred percent of a really small world, and so um anyway, this is w- one more thing that I was uh thinking about the other day that there's this weird relationship between depression and uh and sort of self obsession that what happens is or what happened for me was you go through something kind of tragic and then everyone in your life doesn't react the way you want them to they don't mm-hmm. act they don't they just act normal and they act like you're normal, so your brain tells you. Okay, well, whatever you went through must not matter because if it did, people would be treating you differently. They'd be treating you like it mattered. And since they aren't, it must be fine, whatever that was. And so for me, um, I was just really heartbroken. For some people, they go through sexual abuse. They go through all kind of tragic things. And so maybe you have something tragic happen to you, and then everyone else that doesn't really know about it, or even some people that do, they just act kind of normal. And so your brain, part of your brain tells you it must not matter. I got to just push it down. And so what we do is, um, what I did was I focused on my pain because, and I lived in this like emotion, very visceral emotional state because it was my way of convincing myself that it did matter, that it did happen, and that I wasn't crazy for being hurt by it. I had to like convince myself that it was okay that I felt the way I did because no one else was bothered by it. And so um, it had this like living in this like visceral pain of the heartbreak had this upside to it. It had a certain quality that relieved me of this fear that it would just drift away and no one would notice it. And so anyway, so what happens then is you you start to have this positive relationship with negative mental state. So I was yeah. in a really painful negative mental rut, but had a little bit of positive um, emotion associated with it. It became a miserable comfort zone, basically. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like a friend, you know? And then, um, anyway, so I think it's it's important for me to know like why we get into those places so that we can get out of them. And so, um, yeah, I think it's really part of why... I do this podcast, one of the biggest reasons is to take people that have been through something heavy that just have an unresolved moral tragedy. Something tragic, morally tragic happened to them and it is unresolved. Maybe it happened 20 years ago or it doesn't matter when it happened, but it's just unresolved. So it lives on in the background of your head. And so one of the things we do, I want to do with this podcast is to bring it to the forefront and to um, like sort of Um, rather than going around it to go through it and to talk about the emotional experience that it would be to go through it and to allow yourself to, like, grieve. And, um, And the reason you grieve is so that you can give the pain a beginning, middle, and end. If you don't do that, if you do push it down and ignore it, it will always come up every once in a while in the background. You'll never really get rid of it. I think there's a thing in Judaism where if someone dies they um they mourn for seven days and they have all these rituals and stuff yeah. and they wear a certain color and I don't know what they do really. But they do something and it's very specific and they literally mourn. I don't think they work or anything. They like sit a certain way or something and they mourn for seven days as like a communal thing. And um, I think that's sort of a archetype or a sort of picture of the healthy way to live that when you have gone through something really heavy, you need to go through the emotions of it um, so that when it's over, it's really over, and you're you don't ever have to go back to it again. You don't ever have to live by the rule set that that you did back then. Um, anyway, let's just go into whatever comes next.
1: Yeah, man. So I get my sentence, and uh, it's unbelievable. You know the the sentence that I got, and um, you know if I if I sit here and think about it, I was very transparent with them and and, and honest with them, um, but you know, the state requires a specific minimum, even if you are first time. And I had, I had a, uh, a really interesting case, but I, I, I was on a first offenders act. And what that means is basically anytime someone gets in trouble for the first time they get on that. And what that states is, uh, you're basically saying that you're going to get this deal, but if you mess up within the years that you're on probation, they can go back and they will go back and resentence you right. based on your first crimes and the new crime. If mm. you commit a new crime later on in life, so um, I, I, I go on to, to 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 start my time, and um, as I'm doing it, man, I just meet so many people who who uh, you know are kind of turning their life over to the Lord in the in the midst of their of their storm. Uh, you know, they're in jail. It's, you're right. It is very easy to turn to God in a situation like that. Uh, but I had never been in a situation like that at that time. Sure. I had never been in jail and, um, I'd never turned to the Lord in any way or fashion. Uh, but I had such a big moment with him in that cell um, that it it was, it was, it was almost overwhelming, uh, because, I I wasn't being led in a prayer by a, a pastor or, or anything like that. I'd never done anything to that magnitude to experience, you know, something so supernatural. And uh, and to me, in my personal experience, it, it, it was supernatural because it 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 literally, you know, it was almost like a a healing, a um an overwhelming sense that, that there is a creator. And, and it hit me in a room where no one else was. And for someone who didn't have any kind of religious experience or right. religious background, even though I'd been in church because my mom had us in there. I never really truly was at church to believe in a God. I was just at church because mom made me. Yeah. you know. But you know, as time went on, uh, I just remember my family coming to see me. And man, about six months into my, my, my stay, uh, my dad my dad comes and uh, there's just so much there to, to say to him and to, and to think, you know, just all the thoughts from my past came into my mind and cause I'm sober now, you know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. sober. God is really transforming my mind. I'm six months into my relationship with him, into the Bible, into right. the renewing of who I am as a person. Everything about me is, is literally changing. Yeah. And, um, my dad comes in, man, and literally he's just blown away because he don't even know who I am anymore. It's, it's so, such a transformation. Anybody who know, who, who came to see me during that time will tell you, you know, that I just became a completely different person. I, I had no care whatsoever about anyone's feelings or anyone's, uh, hurt or any, anybody else in general. So such a selfish person. And I just remember God changing all of that. And so my dad comes in and he sits down in front of me and I tell him right then I said dad I just want you to know that I'm so sorry for, for stealing from you and uh, uh, I said I, I began to tell him everything I had taken from him and uh, his medicine that I had taken from him and the guitars that I had taken from him just things that I had Taken, he knew, you know what I mean. It ain't like he didn't know what yeah. I was doing. But
0: it's still a big, like, symbolic yeah. gesture, though.
1: It was, it was, it was me basically confessing, you know, everything. And I did this to my mom, and my sister, and everybody. But it was his turn, and he was there. And I began telling him all the things that I'd done to him and wronged him. And I just remember watching my dad cry, and I'd never seen him cry like that, you know. Um, and, and I said, "Dad, and I want you to know this too." I said, "Everything that that we went through in our, in our past, I want you to know, I love you and I forgive you, and it doesn't matter." And I just want—I want to share with you, uh, God that I met, you know, Jesus that I met since I've been here. I want you—I want you to know Him, Dad. And I want to share Him with you. I want—I want you to know how He can change your life. My dad was speechless. He had no idea what to say to me because he had never seen his son talk in such a way. Yeah, he had never known of me to, to speak like this and with such power and authority in the name of Jesus. You know, and 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 the authority didn't come from me; it came from God. You know, I was just speaking about God in such a bold way about how he had transformed my life in jail. And I said, dad, can I have your hands? And and he gave me his hands and I began to pray with my father for the first time ever. It was so amazing. So powerful. My dad's sobbing. And he, I said, dad, if you want to receive Jesus, just repeat the words after me. And we began to pray, you know, my own version of the Lord's prayer. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, it was just such a special moment. Mm. Um, and, uh, over the over time you know i had gained so much healing with my family and i got out i remember when i remember the day i got out uh it was such a overwhelming moment
0: one last thing i want to say about the recovery thing in the making you write it out making you tell it to yes. people yes. those um symbolic gestures the one of the upsides of that is you like when everyone does know everything like wow. you're so much more yeah. at peace after that absolutely that um It's It's hard. It's really hard. It's this thing where there's nothing to run from anymore. And uh, I feel like all vices are running from some core fear, a fear of God, a negative fear of God that he hates you or that he – just something like that, Mm. some kind of um, fear of the sort of uh, revengeful uh, uh, wrath of God or something or just like – Problems you have with your parents usually, something to do with family, because the people that are close are the people that have damage you usually. Or yes. just any kind of damaging events that happened in the past that all vices are essentially the same. They all provide an escape from those things, those core fears, whatever those fears are. And that in that way, every person has vices that they deal with and that they keep in check. And so every person is on a level playing field because even people that don't have outward things, they do have inward things. And then even people that are winning those fights are still having those fights. No one isn't having them. Wow. That's one of the things I wanted to create with this podcast was to just create that environment where like even people that are really healthy, doing really good for a really long period of time, they have a lot of the same fears you do or that I do. Um, And they just go anyway. I talked to a girl the other day in Chick-fil-A, and she said, I was talking to her about how I just started dating someone, and she was saying, you know, I have this fear. She's about 18, I guess. She said, I have this fear that I'm going to be like 26 one day, and all my friends are going to be getting engaged and getting (laughs) married, and I'm going to be that one that isn't. Mm. And, uh, And I said to her, I said, you know, every single day before I met the girl that I'm dating, at least probably about once a day i had a fear that i was going to die alone and so you just do what you would do if it wasn't there and don't wait for it not to be there i think so much of life getting better is that have the fear experience it let it knock you down for a few minutes and then do the thing you would do if you didn't have that fear at all